Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here's why you should tune in to today's show. JP Morgan executes its first DeFi transaction on the Polygon network. And now you can mint and trade your NFTs on Instagram. Plus, what's going on with Bitcoin? Will Clement, co-founder of Reflexivity Research, is with us to break it all down. Stay tuned for that. I'm Nico Bruga. And if you own some BTC, you want to stick around for this one. Our rock star crypto producer, Marco Oliveira, is raring to go with our guest today. But first, GM, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm good, Nico. Thanks for doing this on short notice. I know that you had some some things and you had to hop in, so I appreciate you coming in. Oh, it is always my pleasure, uh, sir, to come in and sit down with you and uh, wax poetic about this wild world of crypto. And with that said, don't forget to subscribe to Real Vision Crypto. It's free. If you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you don't miss when we go live. All right, with that said, let's jump into the latest price action. BTC price movement is barely phased by the Fed raising rates by 75 basis points. It is currently trading at just above the 20,200 mark. Looks like the crypto markets remain in range bound. Marco, what are you looking at? Well, definitely true that the crypto markets remain range bound. I mean, we've been seeing a lot of this sideways movement. We're going to get into Bitcoin later today. But so other than Bitcoin, I'm really looking at Matic, Polygon. Uh, it's up between 9 and 10% the last 24 hours. Lots of news and activity around this layer two blockchain, uh, especially news around JP Morgan and Instagram, which we're going to be covering in our stories today. But that's all I'm looking at, Nico. Thanks, Marco. Now let's move on to our top story. We know JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon hasn't always been the warmest towards crypto, but when it comes to streamlining global payments, they want in. Bloomberg reported while the transaction wasn't a crypto trade, it used the infrastructure developed by crypto firms. We picked up this announcement through a thread posted by Tyrone Loban. He is head of blockchain launch and Onyx Digital Assets by JP Morgan. He tweeted, JP Morgan executed its first live trade on public blockchain. This definitely feels like a win for the crypto community. Community, they can breathe a sigh of relief and say, well, at least the tech is working. But Marco, what have you what do you make of this story and why is it such a significant step? Well, Nico, it was significant because this was JP Morgan's first ever cross-border transaction over DeFi. And cross-border payments is something that a lot of people in the crypto space are always talking about. This trade was facilitated by the Monetary Authority of Singapore's uh, MAS Project Guardian. Uh, we had Subnendo Mahenti, who is the head of that, uh, with Raul some time ago. You know, so definitely it's a it's a it's an industry. It's a place where there there's a lot of activity going on. They established this pilot pr program to explore potential DeFi applications in wholesale funding markets. Singapore's largest bank, DBS Bank, Tokyo-based banking firm SBI Digital Asset Holdings, were part of that program. And the trade was carried out on Polygon, as you mentioned, a layer two network on Ethereum, using a modified version of uh, the Aave protocol 
protocols, smart contract code. The trade involved a tokenized Singaporean dollar and Japanese yen deposits, and the program also simulated the exercise of buying and selling of tokenized government bonds. Obviously, it wasn't actually crypto, but it was these tokenized uh, you know, currencies there. The head of blockchain at Onyx reacted to this program. He said, the future is really working towards scaling this pivotal moment. So overall, this is a really positive sign for the industry, Nico. Yeah, definitely feels that way. And thank you for that breakdown, market. Marco. It also seems like Singapore is definitely the beating heart of crypto in Asia. They're already working with other big banking giants on token pilots. So lots to come in the land of DeFi. And shout out to our visionaries in Singapore. We'll have to come and visit you all soon. But moving on to our next story, another topic that's buzzing nonstop on Twitter. Another big tech company comes out to play with crypto. Meta announced that it will allow creators to make their own digital collectibles on Instagram, and creators will be able to mint and trade NFTs on the Polygon blockchain. Marco, I know this is a big deal, but how big is big, you think? Well, in terms of a big deal, we'll get to that in a second. What I would say is it's not a surprise. I mean, we've heard you know people like Rao and other people say every big Web2 platform seems to have a Web3 strategy nowadays. But in terms of how big of a deal it is, I think it really just depends on the, your time frame and how you look at it. The NFT market is clearly still hurting. According to recent data from DAP Radar, total NFT trading volume is down 25% from the previous month, currently sitting at around 700 million, which is pretty far away from the peak of 5 billion we saw during the bull market. Uh, Will this move from Meta and move the needle in the short term? I don't think it's likely. But that said, some pe people are short-term bullish on this news. Uh, as of uh, today, the native token of uh, Rweave, which is the decentralized storage solution that Meta is using to archive these digital collectibles, it pumps 60% of the news. All in all, I think Meta getting involved with NFTs is huge in the long term. Instagram has, as you know, Nico, 1 billion monthly active users. Facebook has almost 3 billion. So this is nearly 3 billion people they're going to be exposed to NFTs as a result of this move. And that's that's definitely huge. Yeah, definitely. And do we have a sense of how it will work yet? Well, yeah. So when you go on Instagram, you click on the burger, which is that little menu button up on the top right corner. You'll see an option for digital collectibles. You'll be able to find NFTs there. There's also an option to connect your MetaMask, Phantom, and Coinbase wallets. Uh, some of the team here at Real Vision actually tested this out and it works. I should add that this, these features are only available to people in the U.S. for now, but this is a big sign as to where the world may be heading soon. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, with Meta being one of the biggest tech companies of the world, this could potentially be laying the foundation for NFTs to really go mainstream finally. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, definitely mainstream. Obviously, there's a lot to discuss in terms of whether it impacts decentralization, right? Because Meta's a, you know, people say, oh, it's like a, a one of those big tech companies centralized, right? But it's going to, but by enabling uh, more people to share art and content through NFTs, uh, you know, I think Meta is really just doing justice, bringing people into Web3. Absolutely. That's all we can hope for right now. Now on to our last story before we get to our interview. It's no secret that it's been rough this crypto winter. One part of the crypto industry that's really got beating, really got a beating is the crypto mining business. I'm not really sure what to make of this one, but I wanted to flag it to everybody and get your thoughts on it. Marco, Marathon Digital Holdings, one of the biggest crypto mining companies, just added another 615 BTC to their spreadsheet, Marco. That is incredible. What do you make of this? 
Well, you know, it's funny. We're actually going to be talking uh, about Bitcoin mining today with uh, Will Clemente. Uh, so it's perfect time to touch on the subject. But yeah, this is huge for Marathon Digital. They they mined a record 615 Bitcoin in October. And to put that into context, they mined in one month what it took them to mine uh, in, in the entire third quarter to mine, which was 616 Bitcoin. And this is definitely very impressive given the headwinds they've experienced as, as of late. They had this storm in June that knocked their hash rate offline. Their hosting partner, Compute North, filed filing for chapter 11 bankruptcy uh, recently. So what caused them to have this good mining month? Well, it seems to be, it seems that it's the uh, the 32,000 machines that they energized recently. They were able to increase their hash rate by 84%. Uh, their computing power is now seven exahash a second. And it makes it one of the, not just the largest miners in the world, Nico, but one of the strongest for sure. That's really incredible. Thank you for that breakdown, Marco. And with that said, I think it's time to bring in our guest. But first, a quick intro. Will Clemente is no stranger to the crypto space. He is co-founder of Reflexivity Research, a digital assets research and proprietary trading firm. Marco, Will, I'm super excited to listen in on this conversation. I'll be back with my key takeaways in a bit. Marco, over to you. Hey, thanks, Nico. Hey, what's going on, Will? How are you doing today? Hey, Marco. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you on, man. Uh, we were speaking a little bit offline about a story that caught your interest, and I wanted to start there. Uh, you were talking about Fidelity opening a waiting list uh, for for crypto. Uh, what do you make of that story? Yeah, sure. I mean, throughout the year, we've had all these incredible announcements. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of these things have kind of gone under the radar, given the state of the market. You know, if we look at BlackRock offering, you know, Bitcoin to their clients, uh, through Aladdin, which, you know, BlackRock wouldn't be doing that if they didn't have demand from their clients to be doing so, which are, you know, high net worth individuals. Um, you know, you've got Fidelity offering Bitcoin in retirement accounts. You just talked about the meta Arweave news. You've got Google offering, uh, you know, blockchain node providing. Uh, and then today came out, uh, Fidelity came out with an announcement that they're going to be offering uh, commission-free crypto trading, starting with just Bitcoin and ETH uh, to retail investors. So, you know, there's an incredible amount of news. You know, uh, there's, there's even more headlines than the ones that I just listed off the top of my head that have come out over the last year. Um, you know, it is apparent that a lot of the you know big guys are are stepping into the marketplace and are looking to kind of get their toes wet. You know, regardless of of kind of the state of of the price action of a lot of these assets. And I think you know th this last kind of bull market really captured the eyes of a lot of those entities. And I think they're here to to stick around. And a lot of these guys understand kind of the cyclicality of markets and you know, they understand this is the, the time to start kind of stepping in and building infrastructure for the next bull market. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting to see a big player like Fidelity come in right in the throes of a bear market. So they clearly see something that's worthwhile here. So uh, definitely very interesting. Something else I wanted to touch on before we move on to the charts, because we have a lot of charts today and it's going to we're going to be talking a lot about Bitcoin uh, was the Fed. So just yesterday they announced their fourth 75 basis point hike. Uh, markets reacted initially a little bit positive, but then after, you know, Chair Powell spoke, they kind of puked a little bit because it's clear that the Fed is still hawkish. Powell mentioned that they prefer, he prefers to, or the Fed prefers to over-tighten rather than under-tighten because in over-tightening, they think they can support economic activity. If they under-tighten, they think that inflation will become entrenched. He mentioned the path to a soft landing seems to be narrowed. And he also talked about that we may still have a ways to go in terms of where the ultimate interest rate might may lie. So the term terminal rate or the predictions for terminal rate have gone up than previously expected. What do you make of all of that and, and how is it impacting your overall analysis? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, overall, I don't think anything that the Fed said yesterday was generally surprising, you know, compared to what they've been saying for the last year. You know, the Fed's been very clear with their stance of being harsh, you know, against inflation and continuing to keep, you know, conditions tighter than perhaps they necessarily need to, to be sure that they can get inflation down. I think it really comes down to, you know, the only way that the Fed is going to change course is, you know, it's very binary. Either A, inflation comes down. Haven't seen that yet. Perhaps we have, you know, in some leading indicators, but in the lagging indicators that the Fed is watching, we haven't seen that yet. Uh, and the other thing would be something materially breaking in the underlying, you know, plumbing of the financial system. You know, something like, you know, the Treasury just, you know, fully gapping up like 100 basis points in like two-day time span or something like that. So, you know, we've definitely started to see cracks around the world. Uh, we've seen Japan, you know, continue to intervene with both their currency uh, and their bond market. We've seen, you know, the UK go from QT to QE in one week. Uh, we've seen a lot of craziness, right? Uh, but you know, that hasn't hasn't put enough pressure on the Fed yet to to change course. So, you know, I don't I don't think there was any you know language that was particularly you know surprising yesterday. It was funny, you know, uh, initially in the in the first press release, uh, the Fed basically stated that you know they were open to kind of tapering off uh, the rate of of uh, hikes moving into the into the new year. The market really ripped on that initially. And then uh, Jay Powell came out and hammered things down with it with some very hawkish commentary. So uh, it, was, it was a nice little whipsaw we got uh, during that FOMC meeting yesterday. But yeah, I mean, look, I think uh, I think the language that that Powell was using should really be surprising to anyone. Yeah, definitely shouldn't be surprising. Well, with that as a backdrop, let's uh, touch on Bitcoin. Uh, so you you guys at Reflexivity Research, you guys release this report uh, every week, I believe, where you guys cover global macro, Bitcoin, ETH, DeFi, and a lot of other topics. We're only going to focus on Bitcoin today. And this first chart here kind of really speaks to the volumes of how much the network, Bitcoin network, has grown, called uh, the Bitcoin cumulative sum of transfer value. Now, I'm going to be pointing up the chart on my right-hand side. So if you or the viewers see me, you know, I'm just looking to, to pull this chart up. Uh, but uh, so, Mario, if you could pull this chart up here for Will and then t walk me through what's going on in this chart. So. Yeah, sure. So this is the cumulative sum of all the total transfer volume that's ever been settled on the Bitcoin network. Um, you know, this is in, in linear scale and I put it in linear scale kind of for, for dramatic effect to really illustrate the incredible growth that it's seen over Bitcoin's lifespan. Um, you know, in the first two years of Bitcoin, Bitcoin settled about two million dollars uh, in its third year it had settled over a billion. Uh, fast forward about, uh, you know, uh, to 2017, it had settled a trillion. Uh, by its eighth year, it had settled, I believe it's 10 trillion, and now we're sitting at 103 trillion of, of total transfer volume that's been settled on the network. So, you know, this really goes to show you that, you know, the amount of the amount of volume that's been settled through the network with, you know, no no double spends, no issues, no hacks of the Bitcoin network is, is really a testament uh, to the strength of the underlying network and how reliant that it's been. Uh, and also, you know, how the, how the network continues to see exponential growth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're looking at the chart, though, you're you're seeing that most of that growth happens after 2021 or most of that that um, the, that amount increases like really su substantially there. I mean, do you, what, what are you attributing that to? Is it because of just like the price increases or are there are other factors that you think that are causing that that huge growth there? Sure, absolutely. I think it's fair to state, you know, again, it, it's in linear scale, right? So if we had it in like percentage terms, it, you know, that that latest increase is, is always going to look larger just because of, uh, you know, the, the scale of the chart. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the answer is a combination of things. Definitely, you know, the, the price action, right? I think ultimately, the biggest, you know, marketing campaign for Bitcoin is, is number go up technology, right? A lot of people discover what Bitcoin is because it's going up, you know, 5, 10x in a short time span. People say, what the hell is this Bitcoin thing, right? 
Uh, you get a lot of speculators that, that come into the market. Uh, but I think that the key thing to note is that when we look at any measure of, of network activity, whether it's active addresses, active entities, uh, new addresses, uh, you know, cumulative transfer volume um, over like a year time span or um, the, you know, without the cumulative uh, aspect to it, just looking at the raw transfer volume, what we see is that you know, every, every you know, bull market that, that ratchets up really aggressively, right, as you have all these new speculators and tourists that come in. But the key point is that when we go back into the bear market, historically, every time that's, that's based significantly higher than the previous uh, bear market has. So you know, what that shows to me is that, you know, of course, you're going to shake out some of the tourists when the price isn't going up only. But you know, th there's an increasing amount of people that uh, believe in the underlying technology fundamentally of, of what Bitcoin stands for and how the network works. Uh, and you know, I think that that's also reflected in that cumulative uh, you know, transfer volume chart as well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, very interesting. Well, moving on to this next chart, I mean, these two, actually next pair of charts here, there's two charts here that the, the first one is uh, seller exhaustion, the next one is annual realized vol, and uh, you you make a connection between the two. Walk me through what's going on with these charts, starting with yeah, seller exhaustion. For sure. Um, I actually think it might be better to start with the volatility because the seller exhaustion is based on the volatility chart. Uh, so this yeah. is looking at, I believe, there's several different measures you can look at. You could just look at the flat out uh, you know, realized volatility. I believe this is the 90-day or 30-day. Or um, I forget exactly which one when I made the chart, but it's it's like a 30 or 90-day or, or sum um, of, of the volatility of, of Bitcoin. And I threw a 14-day moving average to kind of smooth things out. Um, the key takeaway is, is whenever Bitcoin's volatility has gotten as low as it is now, you've seen a substantial impulse in, in price afterwards. Uh, and so as you can see in the chart, I highlighted each of the times where it's gotten to that level historically. Uh, eight out of nine times where it's gotten this low, you've seen that resolve to the upside. Uh, kind of TBD on this one, obviously, as we still you know, kind of remain in this period of, of volatility compression. Uh, the one time that it was to the downside was 2018 when we had that leg down from about you know, 5, 6K to about 3K uh, at the end of 2018. So um, you know, in terms of a you know, probabilistic standpoint, uh, the odds are that you know, this resolves to the upside just based on this, this volatility chart. And then to transition into the seller exhaustion chart, uh, it's, it's very similar concept, except you're just uh, comparing the, the realized volatility to the percentage of supply and profit. And so the idea is that when you have very low you know, volatility and there's a high amount of uh, supply that's underwater or for, for sake of talking about percentage of supply and profit, a low amount of uh, supply and profit, that, that's, that's somewhat of an indication of what, what the chart is titled uh, seller exhaustion. Uh, so that's kind of the, the ideology uh, behind you know, what the chart is, is representing here. Of this same thing, you know, eight out of nine times that it's previously gotten this low, it's resolved to the upside. Very interesting. So eight and nine, eight in the nine times. Mario, I want to stick with the uh, the chart that I have here, uh, realized volatility. So, will when we look at these green and red lines here, uh, it looks like most of these green lines ha happened after bear market bottoms during uptrends. The red line one looks in 2019 looks like it happened in a downtrend. Arguably, we're in a downtrend now. Do you think that because we're in a downtrend, we may see an impulse move lower? Or what are you looking at to kind of give you an indication of where that impulse move may head? 
Yeah, sure. I think it's a variety of things. Um, you know, first of all, some of these valuation metrics, uh, some of those being on chain, and then also looking at kind of the the broader high time frame view of of the order books. Uh, I guess to get into some of those things, and we can move on to some other on chain charts. I don't want to dive too much into that because I know we probably have those charts to go through as well. Uh, if we look at the order books, when you look at you know some of the major spot venues, uh, for example, looking at Coinbase, this is most prevalent on there. Uh, there's there's a substantial amount of demand. Uh, below 18k, laddered all the way, you know, down to to 12, 14k. Um, you know, and if you look at kind of the the bid ask differential between the amount of you know the cluster of bids, uh, the night of the chart up there, uh, relative to the amount of asks that are in proximity of price now, it's dramatically skewed to the bid side. Uh, we've recently seen some asks pop up in the 26, 28, uh, 30k area, but it's still you know, dramatically skewed to the bid side. Uh, the last time you saw that was towards the beginning of, of 2020, and that it was that aggressive. Uh, so that's one thing that I'm looking at in terms of, you know, I think a lot of the U.S.-based institutions are operating on Coinbase. So I think that's kind of a reflection of, of demand from those type of entities. Uh, and then the other thing is some of these on-chain valuation metrics, uh, you know, whether we look at things like realized price, uh, the cost basis of short and long-term holders, which I think is a great chart. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of these like relative valuation metrics, I would say, that are indicating that BTC is in the area of value. Um, we can talk about the tail risks in a moment as well. Um, and the other thing I would say is, is watching the derivatives um, landscape to, to feel confident on to kind of where the impulse is going to resolve. Uh, one thing that I watch is something called funding rates. So funding rates are uh, basically what, what uh, pegs the perpetual swap contracts to the underlying uh, spot market. So every eight hours a payment is either paid from longs to shorts to keep the contract pegged to those, uh, the index of essentially the index of uh, weighted volume of, of the spot price across the different venues. Uh, and so what you want to look for is kind of this prolonged regime, I would say, of either positive or negative funding rates to basically gauge uh, sentiment from traders, right? So if you have a prolonged regime of negative funding, you're seeing a prolonged time period of shorters, uh, uh, I'm sorry, of traders being short. If you're seeing a prolonged regime of positive funding, it's the opposite of prolonged, you know, regime of, of traders being long. Um, so for example, you know, after the COVID crash, saw a prolonged regime of negative funding. Uh, beginning of 2021 with all that mania, we saw a prolonged period of positive funding. Uh, the summer of last year when we, you know, were grinding kind of along the low uh, 30K range and we whipped below that at the back half of the summer, that was a regime of negative funding. We also saw a positive regime at the end of last year. Uh, what I'm watching for now is another regime of negative funding. Uh, currently, we've just kind of been in this mixed muted period, which to me just kind of indicates that you're seeing a lot of hedging in general from market participants. Uh, but to feel extremely confident that, you know, that would result to the upside. One thing that I would really like to see, but we don't have to see, uh, would be a regime of negative funding. Um, because that would indicate to me that the market's primed for a move upwards because traders are becoming too comfortable being short in the market. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, the next thing I want to move on to is the, something that you mentioned in your your fifth report, and that's uh, about the uh, the probability of a minor capitulation. You know, obviously last week we heard news of uh, you know core scientific having financial issues. Their stock dropped not ninety seven percent. We had news of Argo earlier on that they lost their funding for twenty seven million. And I think I was reading somewhere that Fred Thiel from uh, Marathon Digital, which we were just covering earlier, he was mentioning that some uh, twenty public Miners are at risk of bankruptcy. He didn't obviously mention which ones, but this is clearly an issue. This is one of also, and then it kind of ties into this whole realized vol that we were talking about. You kind of mentioned it. This could be one of the potential catalysts to trigger the release of that uh, that realized vol. 
Walk me through, you know, what factors are affecting miners right now. Let's start with hash price first. Or hash yeah, sure. First. Yeah, sure. I think, you know, as I just mentioned, like there's definitely several tail, tail risks uh, to the Bitcoin market. I think you know, like the two largest are from like an external standpoint, the overlying, uh, you know, global macro situation. And, you know, if you see this kind of correlation to one moment, you know, credit crisis type moment in the broader equity markets, there's a high likelihood that, you know, Bitcoin will go down with that. I think, though, the aggression of that move down wouldn't be to the extent of COVID because you don't have the market super aggressively long. I think the difference between now and, you know, before the COVID crash was that if you look at the derivatives market, it was super jacked up. So you had, you know, open interest rising aggressively and positive funding rates before the COVID crash. Uh, and I assume that's probably traders that were getting super bullish before the halving that was going to take place in two months. Um, right now, you don't have that. So you don't have traders that are like, you know, derivatives aren't jacked up like they were then. So I think, you know, of course, if you had that correlation to one moment, I think Bitcoin would likely follow, but it wouldn't be to the aggression that it wasn't, you know, the COVID crash where Bitcoin went down 50% a day. Um, now, with that being said, I think the, the biggest internal kind of intro of Bitcoin market risk is definitely miners. And this is something that takes place every bear market. I think it's like important to, and I'll get to the to the hash rate point specifically. Um, I, I think it's important to understand that like miners are a very pro-cyclical force to the Bitcoin market. Um, so, you know, in a bull run, what happens is a lot of miners are incentivized to, to hold their Bitcoin, especially these public guys. Um, and so that, that's what happened. You know, over the last two years, a lot of these guys were holding a bunch of BTC on their balance sheet. Uh, and they were actually, some of them were, you know, going out and borrowing to, to acquire more, you know, mining rigs and, and BTC to slap on their balance sheet. Now, what happens when you go into the bear market? So it, there's kind of this lag between when uh, when miners are orders ordered and when they come online. The reason is because there's kind of a, a delay in terms of, you know, things being backed up on, on the manufacturing side. And then also you need to get the infrastructure in place to get miners plugged in. Um, so, of course, when Bitcoin is going up only, everyone wants to buy it. Right. It seems like free money. The price is continuing going up. All right. I'll plug these machines in. And, you know, if, if you do the numbers based on, you know, extrapolating out the price action of the future, you're like, OK, this, this sounds great. Right. Um, what happens is, though, is you tend to get a delayed peak in hash rate uh, after uh, the peak in price action. I think 2018 is, is a really great visual of this. Um, and and it, it's because of the reasons I just described. Now, now why is this an issue for miners? And this is why, you know, I said they're pro-cyclical force. Well, this is on the, kind of the, the inverse of that, of, of what happens in the bull market. Well, miners are essentially long Bitcoin price uh, and their short energy costs and short hash rate. Because as hash rate increases, that makes that means that there's more competition to mine. So it becomes increasingly difficult for each individual miner uh, to sustain the level of profitability that they're at. Right? Uh, so you can think of it as hash rate rises means there's increased competition. Uh, and so as price goes down in a bear market and, and hash rate rises, what does that do to miners' uh, margins, right? It continues to compress them. Yeah. And so what happens is, is you, you squeeze out all the inefficient guys, and then you get basically this consolidation um, of, of mining rigs back to the most efficient miners, and then you head back into the next cycle. It, you know, if you think about it just from an uh, uh, engineering standpoint, I'm not an engineer, but um, if you think of it from like a mechanical standpoint, you, it's it's a true free market where you know the network basically shakes out all the inefficient guys and, and reallocates the miners into the hands of those who are efficient. And so what happens is, is you have this natural force, this cyclical force that continues to strengthen the network. And it really is a, a beautiful thing if you think of it that way, right? The network is basically strengthening itself through these cycles. And unfortunately, right now we're in the back half of that of that cycle where a lot of the inefficient guys are getting shaken out. 
Um, you know, you've got hash rate ripping to new all-time highs. Um, at the same time, you've got Bitcoin price down 70%. Uh, you've also got energy prices uh, that are that are high around the globe. As we head into the winter, there's not favorable conditions for those going significantly lower. Uh, and then also on top of that, you've got the miners' equity down 80 plus percent because they basically trade, you know, at, at a high beta to BTC spot. So if Bitcoin's price goes up, miners' equity goes up even more. If it goes down, miners' equity goes down even more. And same thing with the mining rigs, which are also down 70, 80 percent. So it's harder for these guys to get access to financing because all their all their assets are down substantially. Uh, and so this has kind of created, you know, the perfect storm for some trouble for miners. Um, you know, we've seen over the last two weeks. Um, you know, not to not to like show a report, but uh, last week we put out a report on miners, as you kind of alluded to. Uh, we said, hey, look, you know, like the conditions for miners are, are you know, not not great right now, right? They're 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 under an immense amount of stress. Uh, and two days later, I had no idea this was the, the case, but uh, two days later, Core Scientific uh, released in an SEC filing that they were basically under a um, immense financial stress, and they were on the verge of having to file for bankruptcy. Their equity plummeted like seventy five percent a day. Um, which is pretty wild because Core Scientific was, uh, well, still is, as of now, uh, the largest share of Bitcoin's hash rate from a public company. Um, and, and so, you know, I think I think that's the biggest thing to watch out for. Now, it is important to state, I would say, that for these public guys, in total, they have about 675 million. Uh, at least the, the top 10 largest miners have about 675 million dollars worth of BTC, which is like somewhere around 34,000 BTC. Um, and, and so, the, you know, I don't think that in itself is a major concern to the market. Um, you know, if, if those holdings were liquidated, um, assuming that all of the, like every single top 10 miner went under and all of the holdings of all 10 had to get liquidated, it would be done through OTC desks. I don't think it would have, you know, a substantial impact on the underlying Bitcoin price from, from the public miner standpoint. Um, but, you know, they do have a substantial portion of, of overall hash rate. Uh, the top 10 miners make up about 17 percent 17 and a half percent uh of the total network's hash rate uh core scientific is the largest of that which takes up 4.9 percent um and the other thing about core which is important to state they sold most of their bitcoin back in june so if you remember you know when we went down to 17k uh core sold about 7200 btc for roughly 170 million dollars at the time so they, they currently only have 24 bitcoin so with them seeming to be, we've also, you know, heard news of Fargo and Iris as well. Um, but, you know, Core is clearly under, you know, substantial stress. And if, you know, they have to liquidate everything and go under some financial restructuring and have to liquidate the rest of their Bitcoin, 24 Bitcoin is not going to do anything to the price. So that's one, you know, that's one good thing is that they've already liquidated the majority of the Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Now, if their hash rate goes offline, that's actually a net good thing for the rest of the network, right? Because it decreases the pressure uh, on the other miners. So I'm not sure, you know, I'm not like a uh, distressed debt expert or like, you know, financial restructuring expert. So I'm not sure if, if you know, that hash would come offline in, in the case of that type of restructuring. I don't think so. I figured it would just transfer ownership. Um, but yeah, I think like from the, from the standpoint of worrying about the public miners having to sell, that's not a huge, a huge concern. Because as I said, I think, you know, it could be the 675 mil of BTC could be sold off in, in a way that wouldn't, you know, have major price impact. Now... Now, what was kind of the big unknown, and I would say it's kind of the 800-pound gorilla in the room from the mining standpoint, is the private miners, right? You know, we have these cycles that take place, and, you know, these same dynamics have taken place before. It's just, you know, now with these public guys, we can see everything transparently happening, you know, through through, through their financials, right? Uh, but there's still a fair amount of, um, you know, I said 17% is, is public out of the top 10, right? 
Uh, so you still got over 80% of Bitcoin's hash rate that's in the hands of, of private miners and the amount of Bitcoin that they hold, it's hard to know the exact figure. Um, you know, according to a data provider like Glassnode, it's, you know, hundreds of thousands of BTC. It's hard to also estimate, you know, how much of that was for miners that, you know, were mining back in the day uh, and are now, you know, completely dormant. So, you know, I, the, the overhang of, of, you know, the private mining space in terms of how much Bitcoin they have, it could be in the realm of, you know, several hundred thousand BTC. And, you know, I'm assuming that a lot of those guys are under the same stress that, you know, some of these these public guys are. So. That I say that I would say is kind of the biggest question mark in terms of um, you know what, what's kind of the outcome of, of of you know the miner situation on the market. Um, but yeah, I think from from the public miner standpoint, they you know they are under immense stress. But I don't think the amount of Bitcoin that they have to sell would, would be a major concern. Yeah, absolutely. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I, I mean, do you think that the the Ethereum miners, uh, you know, moving to, you know, for, since we moved over for from proof of work to proof of stake, those Ethereum miners, like maybe repurposing their their machines to mine Bitcoin, could be affecting the hash rate, or do you think it's, you know, it's it's? I mean, you you described a lot, a lot of things that could possibly be affecting it. I mean, what do you think is uh, affecting there? What do you think that impact is from uh, the Ethereum miner standpoint? No, I don't think so because GPUs, if you try to mine Bitcoin with GPUs, you could have done that like eight, 10 years ago. But if you try to mine GP with GPUs now, you're not going to be profitable. Um, they, the new ASIC models are just way more powerful and way more efficient than, than the old GPUs. I think a lot of those machines are probably being repurposed for other reasons. Maybe it's like other proof of work chains, um, you know, Ethereum Classic, or, you know, maybe they're just being used for like other data services. But definitely, I don't think it makes sense for them to be. Uh, mining Bitcoin. Now, excuse me. Um, what what could be potentially happening on, on that on that front of, of what you're talking about would be, you know, maybe some of the infrastructure in terms of like the rack space that's being used to have have the miners on is being used for Bitcoin. I'm not 100% sure on that, and I'm assuming there's also some nuance in terms of like the exact you know specifications of the infrastructure and, and you know rack space that's built for the ETH miners, which are GPUs versus the ASICs. Um, but I'm sure you could probably convert them. So maybe that plays, you know, some some aspect in that. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but in terms of like our GPUs themselves being used to mine Bitcoin, I would say the answer is no. Absolutely. Well, you touched on uh, coin uh, your uh, cost basis analysis earlier. And I mean, a lot of people always want to know, is it a good time to buy Bitcoin? Uh, we, we still have other charts to cover, but I think this is the last chart that we'll cover because we're running short on time here. Uh, what do you make of this chart? Or like walk us through what, what the, the your cost basis analysis here. Yeah, sure. Sorry, I went off on a little tension about the, the miner stuff. No worries, man. Um, yeah, uh, look, you know, I think with, with on-chain, I, I look at the market in, from like several points of analysis, and, and on-chain is definitely one of them. But my thought, you know, thought process on approaching on-chain has absolutely evolved. I don't think things like looking at exchange balances or trying to estimate whale holdings are, you know, very relevant. I think it's really hard to estimate the clustering around those things. And as the kind of market structure has gotten more nuanced and you have all these, you know, market makers in the space and custodians, um, you know, middlemen in the space. It, it's really difficult to say, okay, this is, you know, um, 
a quote-unquote whale without, you know, potentially mislabeling that as, as something else. So what I have found useful for from an on-chain perspective is basically looking at some of these tools as, okay, you have this spectrum of evaluation. And based on the you know, market participant behavior that we can transparently see on the blockchain, where are those behaviors on this kind of spectrum of exuberance and depression, right? And I would say a lot of these indications are on, you know, very skewed in terms of you know, the lower fifth, 10th percentile in terms of they're on the, the side of, 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 de, of the dep you know, depression side of the spectrum. This is one of the most, I think, clean on-chain metrics historically has, uh, has, has you know, proven to, to work really well. What this looks at, it's very first principles based. It looks at the cost basis of short-term holders and long-term holders. I know we're getting short on time, so I'll kind of leave out the nuance of like what defines that. You can look it up on Glassnode if someone's interested and I've talked about it before. Um, but whenever, you know, what basically happens is you have these you know, new market participants, the short-term holders that come in, you know, during the bull market, as we talked about, everyone wants to buy Bitcoin because it goes up a little bit. You head back into the bear market, Oh, and it's also worth to say the long-term guys are distributing based on on-chain data are distributing to their short-term guys, you know, at the top of the at the top of the bull market. Heading back into the bear market, what happens? Well, you have the long-term guys slowly scaling back in, buying their bags back from the short-term guys that are capitulating out of the market, and basically selling, you know, the bags back to the, the long-term guys that they that they bought from them at the top. Uh, and then also in addition to that, you have some dynamic or some degree of uh, the short-term guys aging into long-term holders. So the, the combination of the two of those things are what, what causes what you're seeing on the screen, which is in a bull market, the short-term holder cost basis really ramps up. And you look at the delta between the short-term and long-term holder cost basis really spreads in a, in a bull market. Heading back into the bear, what happens? Well, the short-term holder cost basis falls back below that of, of long-term holders. And that historically has marked a really good time to accumulate. If you look at the chart, uh, it basically bottom ticked 2012, bottom ticked 2015, bottom ticked 2018, and kind of TBD on on you know we've been in this regime of of um, the, that being uh, the short term holder being below the long term holder cost basis right now for about a month. Um, but we'll, we'll see if if we get a fourth instance of of this proving to be a, a you know very actionable metric. Uh, but in my opinion, this is an indication of it being a really good time to accumulate BTC. And I, I guess last thing to tag on would be. For some of the more, I would say, momentum-oriented market participants, I'd say you know just just accumulating whenever you see the green shading, um, you know that's for more value-oriented market participants. For more momentum-oriented market participants, what you could look for is the cross. What I, what I would call here is a, a bullish cross of the short-term holder cost basis back above that long-term holder cost basis, and so you can see that taking place in the chart in the three previous instances. Uh, so that would be kind of the, you know, what I'd be watching for, for quote unquote confirmation of, of that we've kind of bottomed out. Amazing. Well, we're going to have to have you back on because there's so much to cover that we didn't get to cover today. I'm getting messages from my producers like, hey, let's let's bring Nico back in here. Uh, before I bring Nico back in, though, I'd love, I'd love it if you could tell the viewers where they could keep up with you, with your company and with your research. Yeah, sure, man. I appreciate you having me on. Anytime you want to let me come back on here and ramble, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, I appreciate the plug. I'm on uh, Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash wclementiiii. And then if you want to find our research, you can go to reflexivityresearch.com and it's also in my bio. Awesome. Well, with that said, let's bring Nico back in. Tell me, Nico, what do you think? Well, it's that time of day. So let's get those horns of blaring, the spotlight swinging because it's time for the key takeaways. 
First, Will believes that the Fed's move was to be expected, considering their fears regarding inflation. And unless something really changes in the financial plumbing, the Fed is staying the course. Second, considering the volatility of Bitcoin, Will argues that whenever Bitcoin's volatility is as high as it is now, eight out of nine times we've recovered to the upside. Obviously, we're still up in the air what happens here, but odds are that this resolves to the upside. What could prevent that? Well, the two greatest threats to Bitcoin are the larger macro winds changing to an even more negative stance and what might happen with the miners being long Bitcoin price and low hash rate, but finding a very different environment right now. Will, Marco, anything you two would like to add? Go ahead, Will. <clears throat> I think that was good. It was good to get a little summary of everything I was saying. <laughs> Perfect. And, well, uh, oh, go yeah, ahead, yeah, Marco. And, and I was going to say, if people are interested, I mean, that there, this all this information was in the reports that, uh, that he has. So you guys definitely got to check them out. They're good reports. Absolutely. Um, and Will, we will definitely be having you on again very soon. Thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation to listen in on. And that is it for today. Don't forget to subscribe. Real Vision Crypto is free. For those of you watching on YouTube, smash everything, the like button, the bell, and subscribe. Join us tomorrow for our interview with Christine Kim from Galaxy Digital with Moritz Seibert. It's going to be all about Ethereum yield. We'll see you then at 12 p.m. Eastern live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Oh!